The Guardian. Hello, this is the Business Podcast. I'm Adit Chakraborty. Coming up this week, an oil price shock. Could the world economic recovery be derailed by the revolutions in the Middle East? As fuel prices rocket, we'll hear from our experts and discuss a rocky road ahead for the government. Also this week, they command huge salaries, take vast bonuses and appear to embody the cultures of the companies they control. But what does it take to be a Bob Diamond or a Bill Gates? Business academic Chris Bones on the cult of leadership. Joining me in the studio, though, I have The Guardian's economics editor, Larry Elliott, and The Observer's business editor, Andrew Clark. Welcome to you both. Andrew, you first. Let's have a prediction on which way all is going to go. Uh, well, a, a lot depends on the geopolitical situation in the Middle East. Stop hedging, Andrew. But if I were a betting man, I'd say it will go further up. To? 130, 140 a barrel. Okay. Larry? I think in the short term, probably go to $150 a barrel. In the next couple of years, it'll probably go back down to $80 a barrel when the recession hits. And then in the long term, it'll probably be $200 a barrel. Well, as we sit here on Wednesday morning, the price of a barrel of Brent crude oil, the European benchmark, costs us over $113. That's up almost $30 a barrel since the turn of the year. For an economy that's still hugely dependent on oil, this could be very bad news. Andrew Oswald is a professor of applied economics at the University of Warwick. Spikes in the price of oil are always very serious. And if we look at post-war history, there's nothing that so consistently deflates the world economy. We've seen this over and over again since the Second World War, most famously of all, I suppose, twice in the 1970s, around 73, 74, and then right at the end of the 70s, at the beginning of the 80s. It all depends this time on how high the price of oil goes. But because oil, black gold, is so fundamental to our lifestyle, such a big part of costs, um, this is one of the most frightening aspects of looking forward in the world economy. Britain's oil reserves have peaked. We've passed the point of maximum production. We are technically self-sufficient in oil, but that doesn't tell the whole picture. We produce around the right number of barrels of oil, but it's not the appropriate kind for our consumers. So we need to import oil, and we're an oil exporter, but different kinds of oil uh, at the same time. That still leaves us vulnerable to oil coming in from these other nations. And more broadly, when we look at other nations, like the U.S., for example, where oil production peaked, many people have forgotten this, decades ago. Slowly but surely, Britain will pass into that phase and we will become, in a really literal sense, a net importer. And that will just make us more and more dependent on countries like the Middle Eastern nations. It's a mugs game to predict the price of oil in the short run or possibly even in the medium run. But realistically, partly because of global warming, partly because of eventual oil shortages and security issues, we simply must face up to much more expensive oil and petrol in our country. I would imagine I'll see the equivalent of $200 a barrel at some point in my lifetime, but it's just not possible to predict when that would happen. Andrew Oswald there. Larry, do you agree with that? All price spikes always lead to a big recession. 
It's hard to disagree with what Andrew says. In the past, there have been four big oil shocks since 1973, and each one of them has been followed by a recession. 1973, four, it was recession 74-5, then end of the 1970s, was another recession then. End of the 1980s, the sort of the... Um, the Kuwait invasion by Saddam Hussein, another another recession in the West, and uh, 2008, another big spike in oil prices was followed by um, followed by a recession. So this is the fifth big spike in oil prices since 1973, and history suggests it's going to be there's going to be problems ahead. I, mean, I think that where I would slightly hedge things is that a lot depends on what policymakers do. That in most of those occasions, policymakers have eventually responded by tightening monetary policy quite aggressively because of the inflationary impact. And if they do that this time, then, then it really does choke off. Then it really recovery. does choke off a recovery. So I think a higher oil price, together with macroeconomic policy changes of a tightening nature, does tend to lead to um, um, severe problems for growth and for the global economy. Yes, Andrew, this time round, we've already seen uh, central banks in China and India raising rates as a response to higher inflation, and those are the sorts of countries which have been doing particularly well after the banking crisis. Yeah, in terms of the oil price, this is just the last thing we need. We're coming out of a banking crisis. We had uh, weak Christmas trading in the shops because of all that snow. Uh, We've already got food prices, cotton prices, sugar prices at a high, and now we've got a spike in the oil price. The economy contracted in the final quarter of 2010. Everyone believed that was a downward blip, but this isn't going to do us any good. It's very concerning. Nouriel Roubini, Dr. Doom, whose predictions have proven unfortunately accurate in recent years, um, said recently that if the oil price reaches $140 a barrel, then we're going to see double dips in the major industrial economy. So I think that's quite an interesting um, inflection point. Larry, you mentioned policymakers. What do you think the Bank of England is likely to do? It's a really tough one, I think. I mean, it's the, the bank is obviously split, um, not quite down the middle, but pretty much down the middle. You've got three hawks and currently six doves. And there is a big debate going on about what to do about this oil price spike. I mean, I think in, if, I was, if I was on the committee, I would not be raising rates because I think that what this does really is deflationary rather than inflationary because it squeezes people's real incomes, it adds to business costs and it lowers profits. So in, in the longer term, I think it's actually quite deflationary for the economy and, and, and to actually clonk the economy on the head with, with higher interest rates is probably the wrong thing to do. But there is a school of thought inside the bank which says that if you allow it to get too, inflation to get too high, it becomes embedded and it starts to get through into into wage settlements. I mean, there's not really very much sign of that happening so far, but that is the fear. And and we started off with one member of the committee voting for higher rates, we've now got three. So I wouldn't rule out that there will be, you know, other people on on the MPC who will vote for rate rise. I think that would be the wrong thing to do. And it would actually, I think, substantially increase the chances of the economy going back into recession. But what's interesting about your summary of that debate is how far we've moved in just six months from when people were talking quite openly about another round of quantitative easing, about rates staying ultra, ultra low for, for, for a long time to come. It sounds like from what you're saying, though, that period is over. I think it is over. I think it is over, definitely. And so that, put, Andrew, that puts George Osborne in quite a difficult position because just a few, couple of weeks ahead of the budget, uh, one of the things that the Chancellor was counting on, you think, would be uh, monetary policy remaining sufficiently loose while he tightened up on fiscal policy. Indeed. And he's also under pressure to come up with some kind of a growth agenda from business. As you know, the CBI warned a few months ago that just cutting is not enough. He's 
government's got to come up with some sort of strategy to uh, create jobs and to uh, to rebalance the economy away from financial services. This is um, his big moment to outline a vision. Businesses out there, they're asking for... As ever, they're asking for tax cuts, things like a break in corporation tax and uh, the perennial easing in red tape. This is Osborne's opportunity to set out a plan. We'll see if he's got one. It is, I think it is interesting for, for Osborne because he, he is relying, I think, on monetary policy remaining ultra loose. I mean, there's, there hasn't really been a formal deal between the Treasury and the Bank of England, but you can see the outlines of a, an informal deal, which was that George says to Mervyn, we'll keep fiscal policy very, very tight. And in return, we hope that you're going to be able to keep monetary policy very, very loose. Now, the fiscal tightening is really only going to start hurting the economy next month when the, when the 2011-12 financial year starts. So if the Bank of England starts to tighten monetary policy in the way the city is expecting with two or three increases in interest rates this year and the expectation of further t- further tightening to come, if you have monetary tightening and fiscal tightening at the same time, then that is really not what the doctor ordered for the UK economy. And I think that it's interesting that um, this week the Treasury announced who would replace Andrew's sentence. There's Uber Hawke on the MPC as, uh, as, as the new appointment has chosen someone... From Goldman Sachs. From Goldman Sachs, Ben Broadbent, who is not nearly as hawkish as Andrew's sentence. I mean, I think it'd be quite difficult, I think, to find someone who's as hawkish as Andrew's sentence. But uh, uh, Ben Broadbent is much, much more measured, I think, in his view of where rates should be going over the next six to nine months. And you just mentioned city expectations. Um, what do you... Th- I mean, I know what you, you'd like the Bank of England to do, but what do you think they'll end up doing on rates? Well, I, it's a question of whether they feel they have to, they have to do something because city expectations are so embedded. I think if they think they've got so far behind the curve that they have to do it in order to retain their credibility, they may well be forced into making a decision that some of them think is a bit dumb just in order to, to keep up with, with what the city is demanding because the, the real fear would be that the city would take its own measures anyway through long-term rates, that even if the bank left bank rate short-term rate at 0.5, that long-term interest rates which are set by what happens in the financial markets would go up anyway and and the bank really wouldn't want that they wouldn't want there to be this huge disparity between what it was doing and what was what was happening out there in the financial market so I think to an extent um, it'll be interesting to see what the bank's rhetoric is I I think we should look quite closely at what members of the MPC say in their speeches because they may well talk a lot tougher than they act. It was a kind of interesting speech by Charlie Bean, the Deputy Governor, a week or so ago in which he he talked quite tough but actually the message was actually quite dovish I thought and I I, I wouldn't expect, it's only going to happen this week, but I wouldn't expect Charlie Bean to to vote in favour of rate rise this month at least. And I think you know, the bank may well be trying to talk talk up its anti-inflationary um, credentials while at the same time not doing very much. I'm surprised there hasn't been more um, comment on the appointment of Ben Broadbent, just on a slightly side issue. Do we really want Goldman Sachs telling us what our interest rates are going to be? Um, There's so many Goldman Sachs figures in prominent positions in government, both in the US and the UK. It's more evidence that Goldman Sachs rules the world. (laughs) Larry, quickly on that. Um, Well, he's the second one, um, the second Goldman Sachs Economist to be on the MPC, uh, David Walton, who, who sadly died uh, a few years ago, was the first. David Walton was actually a very good member of the MPC, and Ben is a Ben is a, a good is is a very good economist. I think the the, the problem that the, tre- the Treasury has is that they can only appoint people who apply for the job, and there may well have been other people out there who 
um, George Osborne would have liked to appoint. I'm sure he would have loved to have appointed Roger Booter, for example, who is you know, a, a very, very dovish on interest rates. But um, I'm not sure that Roger wants to um, give up his very <laughs> lucrative, lucrative consultancy to earn 120,000 a year at the Bank of England. So I think there's a question. There is the, the Treasury has a problem in attracting. Um, you know, candidates for for for, for the MPC. I think. Perhaps we should uh, introduce a system like the Americans, whereby the president summons people and tells them that he wants them to work for him, and people are pretty scared to say no. Generally speaking, I think that's true in America. But perhaps not true if David Cameron said, "I want you to work for me." Probably quite not the same as Obama. But that's a fair point. <laughs> Let's quickly do do some politics. What, what do you, Larry? What do you expect in the budget for motorists? Uh, I don't expect. Uh, George Osborne to go ahead with the uh, 1p increase in fuel duty I think that we know from um, Labour's period in office that the one time really in in Blair's first two terms there was a real wobble was when the fuel process hit I think was it 2000 and um, governments are quite scared of the, of the motorist, motorist lobby and I think that they will uh, probably not push through the increase. Well, as luck would have it, we have that very clip of Tony Blair as the fuel protests of 2000 gripped the country. Whatever the strength of feelings on the price of petrol, and I'm well aware of the strength of those feelings, I do hope that over time people will carefully reflect on recent events. However much people may dislike paying petrol duty, there is no way that any government of this country could or should yield to this form of protest. And fast forward to 2011, here's David Cameron last week in the Commons. I know how difficult it is for motorists, particularly for small businesses and families, when they're filling up at the pumps and it's over £1.30 a litre. As we've said, we will look at the fact that extra revenue comes to the Treasury when there is a higher oil price and see if we can share some of the benefit of that with the motorists. Andrew, we've just had clips from uh, Blair in 2000 and Cameron more recently. Um, The striking thing about that period the fuel protests of 2000 was that petrol was under a pound a litre and now we're at what pound 30 heading towards pound 40 quite quickly why hasn't there been sort of large-scale unrest do you think i think it's a fair question um I, i think there is a recognition among the public that global oil prices are partly to blame for this increase so they can't just um pin all the blame on the government and also, there's a recognition that prices of other things are going up as well. You know, we're in a we're in a period of cuts. Um, food is going up in price. Utilities are going up in price. The the price of a postage stamp is going up in price. So perhaps fuel isn't being singled out as an anomaly in the way that it used to be. It will have a big impact on the government's popularity, though. I think if you if you look one of the one of the one of the biggest tests of how a government's doing in the polls is what's happening to real personal disposable incomes. How much money people have got left in their pockets after they've paid all their, you know, the bills they have to pay at the end of the week. You know, so if you went back to the 1970s after the IMF came in and imposed loads of spending cuts, then that was a real time of great unpopularity for Labour. And in the 1980s, when Mrs Hatch was really popular, personal incomes were going up very strongly. And personal incomes now are being really hammered. I mean, they're being hammered by higher oil prices, they're being hammered by higher, higher you know, energy prices, by, by high by VAT. You know, the amount of money people have got left over for the little things they like to spend their money on at the end of the week is really being hit. And that, that I, I can bet you, you know, my, my forecast for the oil price, I would take with a pinch of salt, but I think that, you know, history shows that 
government's really suffering the polls when people's real incomes are squeezed as they are are being at the moment. So that's why the government is, is right to be worried about this. And it's, it's probably why George Osborne will not go ahead with the fuel duty increase. He won't actually add pain to the pain that's already there. But scrapping a penny rise, is that enough to undo all the sort of... No, of course it isn't. But I mean, it's a symbol, isn't it? It's a it's I feel your pain type uh, type gesture. Of course, it will make you know, very little difference, particularly if the oil price goes up to $130, $140 a barrel, because you know, that will wipe out any, any tax benefit the government gives in the budget. But it will be a sign that the government is you know, recognising the pain that's out there. Let's leave that there. Thanks to Larry and Andrew. There's more on this subject on our website at guardian.co.uk forward slash oil. Now, when Steve Jobs announced that he was taking indefinite leave of absence, Apple shares fell 6%. Since then, his value to the company has been estimated at the almost ludicrous figure of $25 billion. So what's going on here? Jobs doesn't come up with a design of the iPhone or the iPad. He doesn't build them, yet he seems to embody them evidence our next guest may point to as part of a new cult of leadership. Chris of Bones is here with me now. Chris, you've concluded the cult of leader is not a good thing for businesses. Tell us why. I think the sort of thing that frustrates me would be the example of the Royal Bank of Scotland and its acquisition of ABN AMRO. So here we have a leadership and a leader and a leadership team with previous track record of success, in fairness it has to be said, who I think in some ways were obsessed by this success they were going to make gold they were going to touch they were going to create it was theirs to have and they were taken on by a clever strategic bid in Barclays and they overreached themselves quite extraordinarily uh, and laid the seeds for their subsequent collapse significant collapse with the damage to the economy with the damage to jobs and so on and so forth that followed as a result of the financial crisis and it's a great example for me of how leadership puts itself in a bubble listens to itself, believes itself to doing the right thing, becomes immune to criticism uh, and can destroy organisations, from which I suspect it will take a very long time to recover. Are you saying that the cult of leadership is in some way responsible for the banking crisis then? I think uh, what the the banking crisis has shown us in modern organisations, and I have to say media is not, uh, you know, (laughs) is as as vulnerable to this as, as any other sector, is that when you put... A generation in charge of wealth creation who believe that they are entitled to an awful lot of of what is out there. They are, if you like, the L'Oreal generation. They get it because they're worth it. You put these people in charge of organisations that don't have accountable shareholders, that that have intermediaries called fund managers who are paid very similar levels or deal with with organisation problems in the same way, and then you introduce this notion of talent and I'm, I'm at the top because I'm good enough and I'm worth an awful lot because talent's very important. You put those three things in the mix and you build some of the most uh, hubristic, some of the most arrogant organisations in the world. And the people who bought the talent myth and the people who bought the high reward myth and the people who's, who got furthest away from their real share owners, you and me, if you like, were in financial services and the extremes in financial services are still you know have still got consequences today so the answer is yes yeah there must be exceptions to your rule though i mean steve jobs is always held as a guy who who turned around apple almost single-handedly absolutely but he got into a mess over his share option rebasing 
and uh, you know has not necessarily made the best decisions all the time. I mean, no. The point I'm trying to make is no one person should be held either accountable or given total responsibility for anything. We believe that in politics and a democracy, um, and actually in good organisations, well-run organisations, and there are many of those in this country. It's much more collective. It's much less uh, celebration of the one person at the top. It's much more uh, a focus on the team. And you'll notice those sorts of organisations, you know, the John Lewis's, the Diageo's, whatever, actually their reward uh, ratios are far less excessive. Um, Their sort of uh, cultures seem to be more inclusive uh, and they work harder to portray themselves as a current brand rather than the vehicle for one individual. Bob Diamond getting six and a half million for running uh, Barclays. Is that an example of what you're talking about or does he actually deserve it? I think it's a great example of the problems that financial services have got themselves into when they brought into limited liability businesses unlimited liability partnerships that used to have high personal risk and as a consequence of doing well high personal reward when you bring that onto a limited liability structure and you put the risk on the balance sheet and you don't change the reward packages you get people with very very large sums of money who are have taking no personal risk whatsoever for that reward that's fundamentally wrong it's not actually good capitalism it's certainly not good for share owners because it encourages people to take the risk with someone else's capital. But are you saying it would be okay if he had if he put his own house on on the line? Absolutely, I'm I'm completely and utterly in favour of putting investment banks back as independent, unliability, high risk operations, and they should be charged in the market at high levels of interest for the capital they employ. We should all understand it's a very high risk enterprise. I think we'd buy less of it. We do less of it, and I think we trace it, treat it with a far greater degree of respect. I have no problems with people earning lots of money. The issue is he's earning money unfairly on the back of uh, government guarantees and access to cheap capital. That's what's wrong with the bonus. It isn't. It's wrong in principle. But Bob, Bob Diamond, like a number of senior bankers, will talk about how important it is not just that they get paid, but they pay a huge amount to people on their trading floors because they need to keep talent. That would seem to me to play directly into the kind of argument you're, you're making. They've bought the talent myth. Um, they have entirely bought the talent myth. Uh, and I, I actually think if you're going to, um, if you need to reward people that highly for taking personal risk, then they have to have personal risk associated with it. What they did when well, after the deregulation of financial services is they brought in unlimited operations with personal liability into the protection of a bank balance sheet, didn't change the reward basis. And as such, have because if you think about it, the vast majority of people in Barclays don't know anything like Bob Diamond. They, they earn ordinary salaries. Your bank manager, my bank manager, will be perfectly reasonably paid. It's the investment or the casino banking, if you like, that drives that sort of reward. So my solution is very straightforward. Split it off, put it back where it belongs in the high risk, uh, high uh, earning area. Fine. Regulate it properly. But don't muddle the two things up. Is there um, uh, significance in the words that we use to describe these people? We used to talk about managers and now we talk about leaders. We used to talk about having business plans and now we talk about visions. 
What, is, what are we meant to read from those words? We used to talk about managers when everyone's an executive. I, I mean, I think it, it, inflation in, in words. So most words are meaningless in, in, this, in, in this environment. Um, but I think anything with leadership in front of it, I say this as a former business school dean, seems to sell at twice the price in twice as many places. Um, I think it's one of these things that organisations get hooked on, they get obsessed with, uh, and they think about leadership talent, leadership pipeline. Actually, what I think it drives is two things. Um, it drives a disconnect from the rest of the organisation. We're the leaders, you're the lead. Um, and I think it drives a mistaken view of what motivates people. So in this sort of talent culture, it's all about money. Actually, an awful lot of behavioural economics research will tell us that it's not about money. It's about other reasons for being here. And so the sort of neoclassical view of motivation has been uh, you know, thrust through uh, this sort of thinking. I think the other thing it does is it undermines the line manager, the, the real person whose job day to day it is to get things done. And the only way you can really engage employees in a business is because they're very well managed on a day-to-day basis, not because they're well-led. You don't say you join a company and leave a manager for nothing. I wonder if, entertaining as all of this is, I wonder if you're not being a bit too kind to the way businesses are run. Because the point of describing a boss as a leader is to make the people who are led to strip them of powers. And, and, And the two have gone side by side. Um, income inequalities, you know, has gone alongside this trend towards talking about, pe- you know, people at the top as being leaders. Actually, it's not an accident. There, there's, it, it suits the purposes of those at the top to, to talk about themselves as leaders, and especially when they're, when they're working with people at the bottom. I think it suits a certain type of leader at the top to describe themselves as a leader, to separate themselves, put themselves in the corner office or do whatever. I, I think the consistently well-managed, well-performing businesses in this country and abroad don't necessarily adopt that approach to leadership. Uh, They're much more thoughtful about people. Um, Ultimately, uh, a good organisation is one that that operates on the fullest potential of everybody, regardless of where they sit or the role they happen to to play. That's what good organisations do. Bad leaders don't do that. Why should anyone outside those companies care about this? Well, all of us rely on, on the wealth-creating part of society to generate our pensions, our life insurance, you know, our ability to buy a mortgage, whatever. Even if we don't work in it directly, we are very much beholden to the ability of that sector to do its job properly. We need to worry it because I don't think at the moment the wealth-creating, the private sector part of society is particularly well-led or particularly well-managed. Um, it's not responding to what it should be responding, which is shareholder pressure, share owner pressure. It's responding to fund manager pressure. It's responding to media pressure. But actually, those of us whose capital is involved and employed, our pension savings, our life insurance savings, our ISAs, you know, these things are all tied up in these big organisations. And one of the things that I'm trying to get people to understand is that, that both governments and business leaders, is that we need to reconnect businesses with their real owners. Well, you're not going to get much of that, are you? Because government actually buys into the business leader thing. That's why it gets Philip Green or Alan Sugar, depending which political party you're in, to (laughs) to come and give them advice. And actually, if you look at the public sector, they've also gone for business leadership because that's why they pay the people at the top of their organisation so much. 
I think the the woeful thing about human resource management generally and specifically in the public and private sector is it's absolutely obsessed by fads and talent and high-performing managers is one of the latest fads. I don't think it helps government to employ business leaders necessarily. It, it doesn't actually help uh, good governance to employ people who op- don't operate and don't have an empathy with the public sector. We've also, uh, at the same time we start talking about business bosses as leaders we've all seen a huge growth of programs where we have business bosses on primetime television for the first time uh in in well in unprecedented droves so we've got alan sugar we've got dragon's den we've got their various sort of mini me programs on itv what are we meant to make of that i have yet to see a business program that i think portrays a genuine representation of the process of wealth creation and and the management and the challenges of it. Um, I think they are part of the inheritance of the cult of the leader. Um, you know, you're fired are probably the two words that that are rarely, if ever, seriously uttered in most well managed organisations, private or public. I don't think they do an awful lot to educate people, and they certainly don't do a lot to role model what good management and leadership should look like. Chris Bones there, and his latest book, The Cult of the Leader, is out now from Wiley. Well, that's it for this week. My thanks to Larry Elliott, Andrew Clark, Andrew Oswald and Chris Bones. The producer was Phil Maynard. I'm Adit Chakrabarti. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.